a variety of birds there. You, you can even, uh, nowadays, you have perfume words there. You have kind of, you know, bubble bath words there. I mean, everything is there. I mean, even once I saw those atomic bomb was there. So, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't have much meaning. But basically, Zen means meditation. So I mean, it's like a meditation, meditation retreat. So that's what you will notice. I mean, we'll do a lot of sitting meditation. This is very much the Zen style. But to see that no matter what type of meditation we do, because I'm aware that some of you come from a Zen background, and some of you come from a very different background. But even for the Zen people who are not used to our retreat, we do it in a very simplified way. Uh, you might notice over time we are not so formal. Again, some of you might think it's a little formal, but compared to other retreats, it's really informal here. Not much is required. Because in a way, what we find is important is to really go back to the basics of meditation, let it be in the Zen tradition or other tradition, that when we meditate, we cultivate concentration and inquiry, not as an end in itself, but really to develop within ourselves our ability to be quiet, to be clear, and in that way to develop this creative awareness that we can use, of course, during the retreat. But the main idea this is a training so that we can take that creative awareness in our daily life so that we can then really uncover and manifest our potential for wisdom and for compassion. So this is, in a way, very much the beginning of this Easter retreat. We're going to be six days together. And each retreat generally has a relatively similar rhythm. That generally, you arrive, and if you've never been here before, it's a little unsettling. If you've been here before then, you just kind of come here and you know the place. But the first two days, even if you know the place, you have to settle, you have to arrive. And all of us actually arrive with many different circumstances. I mean, I, we planned this retreat a year ago. A year ago, I did not know I was going to have a bronchitis before I arrived. A year ago, when, or maybe a few months ago, when you booked this retreat, you don't know if what happened before you came. So in a way, I think it's important that, of course, we plan to come on a retreat. But at the same time, we accept and work with the conditions we bring with us during any retreat we attend. And I think that's, these first two days are very much about coming and dealing with our circumstances, the way we can be in this different environment. Because generally, when we are at home, we get very frustrated. Why am I here? Why do I have bronchitis? I mean, many different reasons. But that's how it is. So how can I be with this? And I think, in a way, a retreat, even if we come with difficult things, I think helps us to create spaciousness around it. Because the main point of a retreat is to cultivate stability and openness together. So that we are stable with whatever is happening, that it be inside or outside of ourselves, but we're also open. For me, openness is to be creative, to not be stuck. This is like this, this is terrible. I mean, I have bronchitis, and I hope I will not be too gross during the week with you, but if I am, 
I mean, this is the way it is. You know, I do my best, and you have to do your best. And I will try very much not to send my germs toward you as much as I can. You know, trying to be compassionate. So we do what we can. I think it's very important. These two first, they're very much to settle because it's a little <coughs> difficult. You know, to get the rhythm, to do the schedule, and then, you know, you feel a little pain here and there, you feel a little sleepy here and there, but this is fine. You know, I mean, you can be awakened any moment, but you can also be asleep any moment. It is totally fine. That's how it is. And so very much to see that any meditation retreat is an opportunity to cultivate the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And my teacher was always very adamant about that. Zen is meditation, but it's meditation always with ethics and wisdom. And so we'll talk more about wisdom throughout the talk in the evening. But ethics, I think, is very important in terms of the atmosphere we're trying to cultivate while we're here. Because all of us, I think, aspire to be ethical. All of us aspire to be compassionate. But there are so many obstacles to that. We feel busy, we feel stressed, we feel anxious. And then we kind of get a little kind of stuck, fixed within ourselves. But I think during a meditation retreat here, because we're less stressed, there is less responsibility, there is, as far as I know, very little business and very little to be busy about, then you can actually be, I think, more easily ethical, more easily compassionate, not only toward others, but also toward ourselves. I think this is very important. So during the retreat, to really cultivate generosity. How can I be generous to myself? How can I be generous to others, in my mind, in my heart, in my body? How can I open myself to others? How can I be tolerant? I mean, you will have to be tolerant of my coughing. I mean, if I cough too much, I will uh, not be here, but it's not too bad. So, you know, you have, you know, somebody might move, somebody, ah, there is a, sometimes we have heavy breathers. <laughs> But I mean, what can they do? They can't stop breathing, can they? <laughs> so again, you know, of course you try to breathe the way you breathe, but you know, you never know. And so to, to in a way, to really be careful of thinking, I can only meditate if there is this and that. We have to meditate with whatever it is. I mean, of course, Gaia House is trying to provide this wonderful opportunity to meditate in these places. And it's a very nice place. But even within that, there can be noises, there can be little this, little that. And again, to be tolerant toward oneself, toward others. To really cultivate a safe and supportive environment, which I think is a very important aspect of a retreat. Then there is also cultivating respect. Respect for yourself, respect also for others, for their space. Respect for the schedule, respect for the environment, and to really see that we always exist independent upon others. We are not isolated, self-independent, existing being. We're all connected to each other all the time. 
We are dependent on everything else for our life. So in that way, respecting our life, but also respecting all the things that make that life possible. And I think part of that is to respect each other too. That the fact that everybody is here makes this retreat possible for all of us. Then there is a silence. And to very much see the silence, not as a dire silence. I don't want you to look at your feet all the time. It's back for your neck anyway. But look in front of you, generally. And if somebody smiles at you, you smile back. I will smile at most people. But if I see that they're very much concentrating, then you know they don't have to smile. But we don't have to be kind of you know serious. We can just be friendly, kindly, but we don't go into kind of pantomime. <laughs> we try to be, in a way, silent in body, speech, and mind, to kind of try to see. To me, the silence can be very revelatory of the internal dialogue. You will be silent, but my, are you going to tell yourself so many stories? about yourself, about others, about, I don't know, you might be in amazing places, even on Mars, I don't know. But in order to see this is, the silence can reveal this, and at the same time, not to judge that. This is just what our brain can produce. You know, we think, we talk to ourselves. But how can the meditation process help to, again, soften that, or make it more spacious, make it more creative, make it lighter. Because I think often our thoughts are very heavy. And so in, in a way that process of just making more space, the thought can become just like the sound of the rooks. They come out and they go. Just very much being aware within the silence. I think the silence can really show us the changing nature of things. Things change constantly your state of mind, your feeling, your sensation. And just in a way, can we flow with this instead of fight with it? I think you know, trying to see the silence as an opportunity. So respecting the silence for yourself, respecting the silence for others. But of course, if you need to <coughs> talk to the manager at any time, for whatever reason, you can do that. If you want to talk to us at any time, we're really available for you. This is very important. We will see you in interviews, but this will be Zen-style interviews. And so every afternoon, one after the other, we'll see 10 of you. And so because of the way you are in line, uh, it will be the way the line goes. And so maybe somebody wants suddenly to see us, maybe just as an interview for the last day. We'll put them up, so we'll see when you are. So if you want to see us much earlier, we have all the time we can see you. During the morning or after lunch, we are there for you. So if you need to speak to Stephen or myself, we're really here for you, to really know that at all times. And then there is a cultivation of clarity. What is it that helps me to be clear? What is it that helps me to you know, again, this kind of spacious, this brightness. And I think to me that's what the Zen practice is very much about, to cultivate brightness. We are here to cultivate that ability we have to be bright, to be light, to be kind of, uh, kind of creative. So very much to see that as part of the process. Then there is a schedule, which uh, you will see uh, shortly. 
And in terms of the Zen retreat, this is a mild schedule, but in terms of retreat you might have done previously, we are not Zen retreat, this might be a heavy schedule. Normally, everybody should be able to do this schedule. If there is any problem with uh, attendance to the schedule, then for any physical reason or any other reason, then just let us know. And also, if you need to sit on a chair, of course, this is fine. And very much in a way, to start, I think it's very important, to start with this great faith in your potential, to be aware, to be awake, and also to have the great courage to really be present, to really be here, to be really, I would say, really feel totally present to your creative potential, even if it doesn't seem to be here because you might be a little sleepy. It's still there, a faith in it. And also to very much, you know, for the first two days, find the reason with the schedule, and really to go each breath at a time, each sitting at a time. Don't move, ah, oh, this is such a bad sitting, this is going to be like this every day, and you kind of see like the sixth day, this kind of terrible sitting. But just one minute at a time. Don't go further than that, one sitting at a time. Then there is always a walking, which is always generally very nice. So I hope that uh, we will have a fruitful time together. Thank you. Um, <coughs> I'd like to go over uh, some of the uh, practical aspects of how we'll be uh, conducting this retreat. Um, those of you sitting at the back, in the chairs at the wall, do you have a place in here, or are you just curious to hear what we have to say? Um, because we're going to have to... Um, we need to keep that back space by the wall clear, because we're going to sit and walk in this room. This is not one of those lovely retreats where you can stroll outside for 45 minutes every other sitting. <laughs> so, has, everybody, has everybody got a spot in the rows? In the rows. This is the crucial thing. There is one spot here. There's a spot here. Do you want to come up here? There we go. I don't think it's been, it's just got a... That's your blanket. Yeah, Jonathan was invading a little. Otherwise, um, everyone who's sitting through the whole retreat has a place in one of these two rows. Yes. Good. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, the reason for the, the, the importance of that is because we are going to walk uh, <coughs> anti-clockwise around the uh, blocks of cushions. I'm going to show you how it's done. <laughs> um, there you go. Um, we're not walking at um, a, 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 a consciously slow pace here, um, but rather at the sort of speed Martin is doing now, which is a regular walking speed. It's going to be a bit tricky because of the number of people that we are. But when the people go to the toilet, it will go yeah, down. <laughs> but, um, we also find that in the first day or so, we'll actually somehow get 
how, as a group, even this large, we can walk quite comfortably in rows around. Um, we're going to be sitting for 35 minutes, and then we'll walk for 10 minutes. So the walk, in some respects, is a way to loosen up the body, to get the, the energies flowing again in the body. And the tradition on which this style is based, which is that of uh, Korea, where we trained, um, the walking can often be quite brisk. It's really about getting us um, active again. It's very good sometimes just to snap you out of a bit of uh, sleepiness. But not to think that, again, that it's a, it's a sort of a time out. It's not. It's, an in, it's a continuation of what we're doing on the cushion in walking. We will have one, the, the mid-walking session during the afternoon will be 30 minutes, and that will be free walking. So at that point, if you want to do your walking meditation outside, that's fine. But also, even during the 10-minute walking slot, if you need to go out to the loo, for example, or if you would just like to get a bit of fresh air, that's fine. But when you come back into the room, could you please try to um, join the walking circle at the place where you left it? So if, for example, I was sitting behind Jonathan here, then I would wait for Jonathan to pass by the door, and then I would slip in behind Jonathan. And so in that way, we keep the order of each block so that when the walking comes to an end, we can all sit down together. Otherwise, it's a bit like Grand Central Station, everybody crisscrossing each other to find their seats. Again, if you've not done this before, it might sound a bit complicated and weird, but actually it's very simple. And if you miss a spot, Nothing bad will happen to you. Yeah, we're not going to punish anybody. We don't have a kesaku, a big stick to hit people with. We only have this little stick, <laughs> which we're not going to use in any form of uh, way that will cause you harm, at least physically. <laughs> now, um, this is called a jupi in Korean. And it takes the place of the bell, which you may be familiar with, or other devices in other Zen schools. It's a very economic um, device. It's just a single piece of wood, slipped down the middle, and it makes this noise. Now, all of our activities will be governed in this room by and variations on that theme. Now, We'll have um, four blocks of sitting before breakfast, through the morning after the instructions, and through the afternoon, which is the longest block, and then there'll be a sitting um, at the end of the evening after the talk. And each of those blocks will be started, once everyone has found their place, with three strikes. We'll then sit for 35 minutes, or thereabouts, and then to mark the end of that particular sitting, there'll be one strike. Now at that point, this is the indication just to stretch your legs. 
particularly if your legs have gone to sleep or if it's stiff, just stretch your legs for a minute or two until you hear another strike, which is the signal to stand up. But if your leg can't get up, you can't can wait. Then you can wait until the crew goes round and you can hobble back into the run. <laughs> the, uh, uh, when everybody's standing up, we've started doing the third Yeah, 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 third time. We're breaking with tradition, which is very, very hard for me to do. We will actually initiate a third strike. In other words, when everybody's standing up, that's the strike to then begin walking around your block of cushions. And we do that for 10 minutes or so until you hear, which is the signal to sit down. Now, depending on who's hitting the jukpi, whether it's Martin on this side or me on this side, I will wait until, let's say, my guinea pig Jonathan here gets to his cushion and then I'll do that. So more or less everybody in this block will be by their cushion at that point. But of course the other block may not have synchronized so quite perfectly. <laughs> so you may have to walk around even as much as another whole round before you get to your cushion. But it will all become clear. But that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and, um, and then at the end, so, then, so the walkings and the sittings are broken in that way. And then at the end of the whole block, namely um, when it's time for breakfast or lunch or the end of the afternoon, then we'll conclude with three strikes like that. Okay? Uh, and again, it's much easier to do this in practice than it is to imagine it in terms of how I'm describing it. It'll be actually quite simple. And I think you'll even begin to enjoy it. Next. We are going to perform uh, a brief um, ceremony of three bows. Um, first thing in the morning, before the first sit, so that will be at quarter to seven. And again in the evening, before the last sit, right? Now again, this follows uh, in tradition uh, as practiced in Korea. Um, the formal aspect of Zen in Korea is compared to, say, some schools in Japan or China, um, very minimal. And all we ever did in our sanghang, or sendo, was three bows in the morning and three bows in the evening. That was it. We had some, some recitations around lunch, but we won't be doing that. We'll just confine ourselves to these three bows, morning and evening. Now, if there is anyone here who, for whatever reason, has religious or philosophical or other problems with the issue of bowing, then don't feel any obligation to participate. Just stand up and think of England or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, if you'd like to join us, uh, it's very much uh, an integral part of this uh, practice. Now, please get out of your mind altogether any sense that we are bowing to that idol sitting on the altar. Um, the image is simply a symbol and the Buddha uh, for Buddhists uh, symbolizes what a human being can be or become. Um, and so whatever your own idea of an optim optimal human being may be, Classical Buddhism would think of it in terms of, as Martin was saying, of, of wisdom, of compassion, 
whatever your idea of that might be, that is what we are honouring when we bow. We're honouring, in other words, what um, we, in our, in our best moments, can be, and also what our lives, over the course of the years, can more and more come to somehow embody. So in other words, we're honouring a, a set of values, uh, of principles. In, in classical Buddhism, this would be summarised in such ideas as the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. We don't need to think of it specifically in that way. And in bowing, we are, um, in many ways, performing uh, a gesture, which is really part of much of Asian society anyway. When you have to remember that in Asia, when you go, like in India, if you go to greet somebody, you don't shake their hands, you bow down, and you might even touch their feet. And that's where this comes from. So, um, it is a, a carryover from the, the, the cultures from which Buddhism and Zen have evolved, and it's also our way of honouring uh, that history and that tradition, which we have also to recollect is to honour the men and the women who over, over hundreds of years have uh, continued these practices and these exercises and have made them uh, possible for us to do them today. So we're also honouring the lineage. We don't have to think of that in a strict list of long names, but simply as the continuity of human commitment and behaviour and faith and uh, curiosity that have animated uh, Zen Buddhism in particular, Buddhism in general, for about two and a half thousand years. So there's that aspect to it too. Um, we're also, in the, the, the little ceremony we will do, we'll also involve the offering of, of water, uh, the offering of uh, light, a candle, and the offering of a stick of incense. But we'll only leave the incense for about a minute and a half. Yeah, Martin doesn't like this, reacts to incense, and there may be others too who are chemically sensitive, so that'll be very minimal. Um, the amount of smoke that will be generated. And again, there are many ways in understanding that offering. We're not, to repeat, offering it to um, that image on the altar. But this is a way in which we are, as it were, offering up the, um, uh, the foundations of our life, in a way, water, that without which we would not live, light, that which illuminates and makes the world visible and present for us. And incense, that which we, in a way, enjoy. Uh, we, we, we symbolically, in offering these things, are offering all of our experience, our sensory experience, our nutrition, the luminousness of our senses, all of that is being given up, as it were, to what we value most in life wisdom, compassion, whatever, however we define what Buddha or awakening or um, enlightenment may mean for us. We can also see, particularly with the idea of with the light and the incense, it's also somehow that the offering is also a, a giving of ourselves away as the candle burns and as it were consumes itself, it gives itself as light 
or in the case of incense, it gives itself a scent. So there's a sense also of somehow um, giving our own energies, um, our vitality, um, everything that we are, we are symbolically giving it away, not to our own ego gratification or our own kind of indulgences, but rather to something more than that, something which goes beyond our usual limitations. So, um, again, this will become much more uh, evident when we start doing this. And the first um, uh, uh, bowing will be tomorrow morning when we gather here. Again, we're a little bit squeezed for space, but over the days we'll certainly figure all that out. Um, most of you, I suspect, have probably done bowing in one form or another. Um, do you want to sort of give an illustration or not? Um, the, this is, if you look at Martin now, this is how... So normally I should do it this way, right? She'll be facing a little bit, so she can... This is how she does it, but you don't feel obliged to follow this gesture for gesture. So I'll do the strikes now to show how this works, okay? Now this is the snazzy bit. She lifts her hands very slightly. We won't do it so fast tomorrow. That was fast. No, it was slow. Um, and that's it. I will take care of the uh, water and, and, the, and the incense and so on. And then after that's done, then we sit. And then we'll begin the session. Um, and then in the evening, we'll do exactly the same thing. Now, Martin um, mentioned something about the interviews. Should I say a bit more about that? Maybe we'll explain that later. Yeah. OK. Um, yeah, tomorrow, um, for the instruction, there are going to be two periods during which we speak. Uh, that, that is Martin and I. Um, in the morning, after the work period, uh, we'll give about a half an hour on the practical aspects of meditation practice uh, in the Zen uh, tradition. And as Martin already said, people mean an awful lot of things by Zen, and it's just as true that uh, within the Zen school itself, people mean an awful lot of different things by Zen. It's almost tempting to sort of get rid of the idea altogether. But the form of practice that we'll be following will be based um, quite closely on our own uh, training career, um, which is based around the practice of a, what's called a huddle, or a question, we'll explain more about this later, which is tied to the idea of a koan, or a konan. Um, and that will also be explained. But effectively, it's belongs within the Linchi or the Rinzai school of Zen, but quite of a different flavor than you might be familiar, say, with um, a lot of popular literature on Zen uh, in English, which is almost entirely drawn from the ja reformed Japanese schools as we know them today. This is going to be quite a different flavor. 
inevitably, um, not necessarily inevitably, but in any case, we will also be refracting those uh, teachings and those instructions and those practices through our own experiences, or through what we have found to be helpful over the years in our own practice. And we'll also be bringing in elements of just mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, um, which we both find to be a very, uh, very valuable grounding for this process of, of questioning, which will be the main practice we'll pursue through the week. But again, we're aware that we're speaking to a very diverse group. Some of you may have had relatively little um, experience on meditation retreats. Others of you we know have had lots. Some of you have perhaps a very well-established practice, maybe not a Zen practice, but a practice in another Buddhist tradition or another school. Um, so again, we don't somehow expect that every word we utter in the instructions will be followed literally by everybody in the room. Um, think of these instructions really as um, advices or guidelines or suggestions that you may want to take quite strictly and follow them as closely as you can. Or it may be that they simply shed light or they serve as a reminder uh, to what you're already doing in your meditation practice. I think the important thing to remember, as Martin already said, is not so much to achieve proficiency in some technique but rather to find within your own lives and your own practices what, what works. The, the important thing is not whether you're particularly good at doing a particular technique of meditation, but whether you can find ways to make the mind more focused and still, and at the same time bright and alert. That's the key. Whichever school of Buddhism you're in, that is the key. It's called uh, the unification of shamatha and vipassana. I recently found out that the word shikantaza, which is often translated as just sitting, in fact means, she means shamatha or stillness. Kan means vipassana or clarity of mind, investigation, insight. Ta means together. And za means sitting. So it's sitting, vipassana, shamatha, together. Which you find in all Buddhist schools. You find the Buddha uses that expression in the Anguttara Nikaya. So that's the point. The, the, the methodologies, the techniques are always subservient to the realization of that, of that principle. Again though, since we are coming here on a retreat to engage in a certain kind of training, uh, to work within a certain form, then it's a good opportunity to avail ourselves of that uh, possibility and to explore the kinds of exercises that Martin and I will be talking about. Um, we certainly don't regard these as the be-all and the end-all of Buddhist practice. It is one approach amongst many that we've found valuable, and we'd like to share that with you.
So if you would like to sort of stay with our approach for this week, um, we'd appreciate that. You may find it of value. But if you find that a practice you're already doing is one that is, it were, more effective for you, then use that as your lodestone, as your ground, as your, as your point of reference. In reality, that's what we found people do anyway. But I think it's good to make it clear. Okay. Um, is there anything I've said that's completely baffling and unclear? Maybe the posture. The posture. Uh, the posture. Uh, again, in Korea, um, they don't make such a big deal of the posture as they might in Japan, uh, particularly in, say, the writings of Dogen. Um, by Japanese standards, the Koreans are pretty sloppy cities. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, and uh, so, but nonetheless, um, I think it's probably worth saying a few points about the posture. Most of you seem to be opting for sitting on the cushion on the floor cross-legged. That's fine. But again, the exercise is not about seeing how long you can sustain uh, a certain pain in the knee. And to, to go into, to, to, to experience constant physical pain, I don't think, frankly, is uh, always necessarily very productive or useful or certainly not agreeable. So we need to find a posture in which we can, and again, it's the principles here that count, in which the back is upright. Now, by upright, that doesn't mean militarily erect, but it means comfortably upright following the curvature of the spine. The, the shoulders are not tense or tight or rigid, but hang loose in the sockets. That the hands either may be placed on the knees, or else in the classical mudra, with thumbs touching, the right hand on the left, or the left hand on the right, whatever you've been taught to do. The legs cross-legged, but again, don't force yourself into half or full lotus postures if it's going to be uncomfortable. But the point is to make your body feel as though it's grounded, that it's somehow solidly secured to the earth. That's what's important. If you feel wobbly or off balance or just about to topple over backwards or forwards, then you need to find a more comfortable way of sitting. Experiment with the zafus. Maybe you need an extra one or a, a thinner one or a thicker one, just so that you get your blood circulating properly in your legs. And if you find it too painful, then sit on a chair. That's perfectly fine. Uh, you may have to thereby move your cushion a bit and then move the chair into the circle the cushion with it when we come to walk, but we'll find ways around this particular issue. Uh, but not to hesitate to sit on a chair, particularly if you feel that your body is suffering unduly. Martin, you notice, sits on a chair. Um, it's not um, obligatory to sit cross-legged on the floor. Upright back, the eyes looking ahead about three feet in front of you half closed, 
tends to be useful, but if, you, if you're used to having your eyes open or your eyes closed, that's fine. You just find what works for you. And also for, uh, to say that the people on that side are going to face the wall. And the people on that side are going to face each other, but they're not staring at each other. The people on that side look about that. They can about gazing here and then gazing there. And not, I know some people sometimes do this, but if you can avoid it. So in other words, we're going to, going to imagine that there's a wall running down the middle of the world. If we had the equipment, we'd install it. But we don't. So imagine that we're all looking at a wall. But, but you see, in Korea, I mean, that's a thing different from the Japanese. In Korea, they don't fa they f they d face the wall, but they don't watch the wall. In Korea, they watch yeah, on you, the floor. You don't, you're not squeezed up against the wall here because of this walking system around. Um, the, personally, I find the value of looking at a wall um, is that it gives you a maximum sense of uh, solitude. You see nobody else, really, except perhaps out of the very periphery of your vision. Um, and yet, at the same time, you feel supported by the presence of everybody else in the room. Um, it's a little bit different for those of you who are on these inner lanes, because you will inevitably see a little bit of what's going on. But if you just keep your eyes down, you'll actually achieve, I think, a similar kind of sense of being alone, and at the same time supported by everyone else. Okay? So let's stand up for a minute and then we'll just do a symbolic sit for about 10 or so minutes before we go to bed. Okay, so as we sit, those of you on the outside looking at the wall, those of you on the inside looking at the carpet just in front of you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.